We're three weeks in to our What Are the Odds series, and we've already looked at some really, really significant ways that Jesus completely fulfilled very specific prophecies recorded in Isaiah 53. And this week, we're going to focus on verses 6 and 7, where Isaiah shows us really profound pictures of Jesus as a willing scapegoat and a humble lamb. A willing scapegoat and a humble lamb. I invite you to look at that passage with me, Isaiah 53, and we're going to look first at verse 6, Isaiah 53, verse 6. Holy Spirit, fill us, we pray. Fill our minds and our hearts. Illuminate your word. Show us Jesus as he is. Show us what he did for us. Show us what He alone was able to do and what He alone did. And may it impact us in every possible way going forward. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Isaiah 53, verse 6. And I'm reading this today from the NLT, the New Living Translation. Really sheds great light on what uh, was intended in this prophecy and as Isaiah wrote it. It says, All of us... All of us, like sheep, have strayed away, as sheep are prone to do. Not being a shepherd, I'm not speaking from experience, speaking from what I glean from others' experience that have that working with sheep, that they are apparently very prone to stray and do what they want, when they want, how they want. So it's fitting that, yes, we would be compared to them. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. That sure sounds like us, doesn't it? Yet, even though that's true, even though we have done and do that, look at what Isaiah writes here, yet the Lord, Yahweh, this is speaking of God the Father, Yet the Lord laid on Him, on the coming Messiah, on Jesus, His own Son, yet the Lord laid on Him the sins of us all. So what Isaiah rightly does here is he diagnoses our condition as being rebels, as being mutinous against our holy and righteous God and King. We rebelled. We turned away. We said, no, we don't want your rule in and over our lives. We want to rule our own lives. Thank you very much. We want to be our own God. We don't want you. That's what all of us as humanity in general said to God, the Creator, the King, first in the garden with Adam and Eve and their fall, and then ever since then, every single person by birth and by choice says to God, no. I want it my way. So what Isaiah says here is absolutely right. And he also indicates, even without saying it explicitly, he indicates there's a need. Because we have strayed away, because we've left God's paths, His righteous standard, His will for our lives, because we've left that, there's now a big problem. The fellowship with God is broken. The relationship is damaged. And there's a penalty for that. There's a consequence for our sin. Sin has to be dealt with. 
God is perfectly gracious and loving and good, but He is also perfectly just. He can't not deal with sin. He has to do it. And so, unless God intervened and did something about it Himself, those sins that we have committed, the sins of rebellion and pride and lifting ourselves up and exalting ourselves up in His place, all that, all that penalty, all that punishment would have to fall to us. But because God is loving and gracious and merciful, He didn't just let that happen. He didn't say, you have sinned, you have a penalty to pay for that sin, it's death, I'm going to give it to you right now. I'm going to let the hammer of my justice and my judgment fall on you as you deserve. He could have said that, but he didn't. Look what it says. Look at it again. Yet the Lord laid on him, on him, the sins of us all. He didn't lay on us the sins that we committed and the penalty for that that we deserved. Even though we, like stubborn, stupid sheep, strayed away, left his past, continued to do our own thing, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Isaiah was pointing back to something here that every Jewish person would have been familiar with. It's the concept of the scapegoat. Every year at the Day of Atonement, the high priest would select two, two look-alike goats that he would designate for two different purposes. And we find that ceremony and that act in Leviticus, something that we don't spend a lot of time with, that book. We tend to view it as tedious to get through because of all of the rituals and regulations and ceremonies. But there is, as with anything in God's Word, there is a lot to glean from even those details. And here's one such example. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 5 through 10, outline this ceremony, this procedure that Isaiah really is alluding to. So I would invite you to look at that with me. Go ahead and bring that up or turn there in your Bible. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 5 through 10. Leviticus 16, and we'll start with verse 5. Here's what God's Word says. From the Israelite community, he, and this is specifically talking about Aaron, but then every high priest after him, So a pattern is set, a precedent for the high priest to do this. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burn offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Verse 7, then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats. One lot for the Lord, and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. Verse 10, But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Now, some of your translations uh, that you might have opened before you, you might see the word Azazel. That is actually the Hebrew word that literally means a remote place or a uh, forgotten place 
which is why a lot of the translations translate that as wilderness. It, it works. It's the same concept. So Azazel is the literal Hebrew word, which means remote, forgotten, cut off place, wilderness place. So that's the same thing there. I just want to point that out to you. So he's supposed to send that out into the wilderness as a scapegoat. That's the purpose for it to be sent out. And so that's what we see going on here, and that's what Isaiah is alluding to, is this ceremony that took place every year at the Day of Atonement. And before this scapegoat was sent out into the wilderness, the high priest would place both hands on its head, and he would confess all the sins of the people, including his own. And then, with the scapegoat symbolically, it was all symbolism, it was a picture, with the scapegoat symbolically then bearing the sins of the people, because the priest symbolically puts those sins on that scapegoat, he's then taken out of the camp, out of the city, later as that came, cut off, cut off and away from all the people and put into a desolate, forgotten place. That's the connection to what we read earlier at the end of Isaiah 53.6 when it says, the Lord laid on Him the sins of us all. Don't you see that imagery, that picture? So God the Father lays on God the Son, the perfect Lamb, the sin that He was supposed to come and be the sin bearer for and the sacrifice for, and it's all connected to what happened at the Day of Atonement. That picture with the priest laying his hands and laying the sin symbolically on this goat, not a lamb, but a goat, but the same concept, the same idea, sending them away from the people out into that forgotten place. What a great connection. And it's what we see Jesus completely fulfilling in the New Testament. It's a picture of the coming Messiah. It's a picture of what He was to do, and we see Jesus absolutely fulfilling that in the New Testament. At the end of John 1, the great prologue about the Word is contained there in John 1, and John talks about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And then at the end of John 1, we see John the Baptist. He's doing his ministry. He's baptizing people. He's teaching people. He's preparing for the public ministry of Jesus. And he's proclaiming that Jesus is going to be the promised divine Messiah. The one that's coming is the one that is unique in all that He does and all that He's going to bring about as the divine Messiah. And at the end of John 1, we see John the Baptist making a really major statement that was completely connected to the things we just considered about the Day of Atonement and its connection to Isaiah's prophecy. John 1.29 John is, is baptizing, and he's, he's talking about the coming Messiah. He's saying, you know, you think, you think I'm great. You haven't seen anything yet. The one who's coming after me existed before me. I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. I might baptize you with water, but the one coming will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. And he's just giving these great statements about Jesus, saying he's the Messiah. He's the coming one. He's divine. I'm not. And then... It says this, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
what happened in Isaiah's prophecy? What did he say would happen with the Messiah, with Jesus? That the Father, God Almighty, would lay the sins of the people on Him. The Day of Atonement from Leviticus 16, the priest would lay his hands on the goat, symbolically laying the sins of the people on him, sending him away, taking the sins of the people with him, right? And here's John saying, look, there he is. There's Jesus. There's the Lamb of God. The prophesied one. The one that all those rituals that you did every single year that you took part in, you saw happen, He's the fulfillment. That's what it was all about. Look to Him. Look to Him. And just as the scapegoat carried away the people's sins and iniquities symbolically into an uninhabited land, Jesus certainly, not symbolically, but completely carried away our sins, fulfilling that Old Testament picture. And with Jesus... Listen to this. With Jesus, it was not merely a human high priest that symbolically laid the hands on on him as, as some sort of picture of what was happening. No, it was actually God the Father who placed the sins of the people, not symbolically, but literally. All the sins of all of mankind was placed on his own son by his own hands. It was God the Father doing that. It wasn't just an ordinary priest. And that was the direct fulfillment of Isaiah 53.6. See, we need to understand, we need to really get the fact that it was God the Father that did this, that God the Father put our sin, your sin, my sin, all of it, He put our sin on His Son, on His own Son, so that He could bring us to Himself. That's why He did it. Because if He didn't do that, we would never be able to come to Him. And God who is just is also merciful. God who is absolutely righteous and holy is also incredibly, perfectly gracious and full of love and desired that a way would be made that we could be brought back to Him after our rebellion against Him. What are the odds that anybody but Him would do that? What are the odds? Only our God. Only our God would do that. Only our God did that. He put our sin on His Son so that He could bring us to Himself. That's what was taking place on the cross. We look at the cross. We see it all around us. It's here every week when you come. It's such a famous and familiar symbol. But so many times we lose the weight and the gravity of what was done there. What was accomplished there. That's what was taking place on the cross. And that's why Jesus used those precious, quickly fading breaths to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because for the first time in all of eternity, the Father could no longer be in perfect fellowship with His now sin-bearing Son. And He had to turn away. Because God cannot entertain sin. God who is completely, perfectly holy cannot entertain even for a second the presence of sin. And so there on the cross, His Son, the perfect Lamb, the scapegoat, was now bearing all of 
our sin and was going to be sacrificed for it, and His Holy Father could not even look at Him. Imagine that. For the first time in all of eternity, Jesus did not have that connection, that perfect connection to His Father that He had enjoyed for eons and eons of time. Beyond time, outside of time. Now suddenly that was cut off. And that's why He cried what He did. Where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Certainly He knew the answer, being God. But here in His humanity, in His role as the sin-bearer, He was completely in anguish, completely crushed, which is what He was praying for prior to this in the garden when He said, let this cup pass from Me. Remember? When He said, please, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from Me. It wasn't the cup of physical suffering on the cross. It was the cup of spiritual anguish that He knew was awaiting Him when the Father, His Father, turned away from Him. And He did it for you. He did it for you. But of course, the Father didn't just turn away. And remember, in the Day of Atonement ceremony described in Leviticus that we just looked at a few moments ago, there were two goats, right? Two goats. One was the scapegoat sent away, alive, The other was designated as for the Lord, for sacrifice. The scapegoat represented and pointed ahead to Jesus bearing the sin and taking it away, but it also, the sacrificial goat, pointed ahead to the fact that Jesus, as the perfect lamb, was not just going to bear our sin and have the Father look away and that was it. No, He was actually going to be sacrificed for the sin. So, what we see in Leviticus with both goats actually points ahead to Jesus perfectly completing both tasks. Don't miss that. Both tasks were completed by Jesus. He was the offering for sin and the carrying away of sin. He did both. Friends, Jesus uniquely and completely was our sinless scapegoat and our all-sufficient sacrifice. Jesus alone could do that. And knowing that, knowing that should motivate us to keep turning to Him and keep turning away from sin. That's what repentance is all about. And we, like sheep, do keep turning to our own way, don't we? We find it incredibly easy, incredibly comfortable to do that. We all the time keep choosing sin over righteousness, keep choosing to live for self instead of Him, even though we know He did all this. And understanding what went into the work of Jesus on the cross, that should be our motivation. Because you're never going to find such love beyond Jesus. You're never going to find anybody who would be willing to do what He did for you, knowing what we are and knowing what He is. So knowing that Jesus was our sinless scapegoat and our all-sufficient sacrifice, knowing 
that He, being just as righteous as the Father, took all of our sin on Himself, which resulted in His own Father turning away from Him, knowing all of that. That is your motivation, church. That's your motivation for continuing to turn away from sin and continuing to turn to Him. Back in Isaiah 53, we're provided with some more really profound prophetic imagery in verse 7. So let's look at that together. We've seen now that the Father laid on Him our sin, even though we deserve to bear it and to bear the consequence for it. Instead, it was passed on to His Son. Now Isaiah 53.7 says this, He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet He never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. What are the odds that anyone else would do that if they were innocent and being accused of anything? I mean, we know that doesn't happen. We all have this innate sense of justice, right? We all want to see justice done so long as it's not done on us. But we all have this kind of warning system that goes off whenever we sense an injustice to us or to other people. You know, it goes off. Oh, there's an injustice happening to me or there's an injustice that I'm seeing or reading about and our alarms go off because we want justice, right? Justice, justice, justice. And anytime someone feels like they are being wrongly accused or or unfairly treated, harshly judged, they let you know about it, right? Especially in our current age. I mean, we've seen a lot and heard a whole lot about lack of justice and the need for more justice and reform here and reform there. And, and it just goes on and on and on and on. And everybody's extra sensitive to any sort of even slight injustice. And then it just it's all over. What are the odds that someone completely innocent, completely righteous, deserving of no accusation, no sentencing whatsoever, would be brought before an illegally convened court, having trumped up charges in a kangaroo court, false witnesses brought, and to stand there and take it and say nothing. What are the odds that a person with all authority, the person who was the judge of all mankind, all of humanity, including the ones he was before, would remain silent against their accusation? Those odds are pretty high for that never happening. But that's exactly what happened with Jesus. And once again, we see Him fulfilling completely, down to the the smallest detail of what Isaiah prophesied 700 years earlier that we just read. I want to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, verse 59. And records this. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin 
were looking for false testimony. So they were intentionally looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death. They knew that they weren't going to find anything legitimate. They knew they weren't going to get him any other way. They had tried and tried and tried to trap him, get him to say something false, get him to say something worthy of imprisonment. They couldn't get him to do it, so they just decided, you know what, we're going to just go out and find false testimony. So they were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they could not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two who came forward stated, this man said, I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Verse 62, the high priest stood up and said to him, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? Verse 63, and keep what we just read, Isaiah 53, 7 in mind, but Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And then verse 64, since it was a direct question or charge, look at what Jesus does here. You have said it. Verse 64, you have said it, Jesus told him. Out of your mouth, you just said it. Those words, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to deny what you just claimed me to be. You've said it, Jesus told him. But I tell you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, which is a, a statement of, of other Old Testament prophecy, Daniel, Ezekiel, others, which was an undeniable connection to him saying, I am the promised divine Messiah, and you're going to see me in all of the glory, all of the coming power and the kingdom that is rightfully mine. You're going to see it. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his robes, which was a violation of his office, by the way. Didn't seem to matter at this point. He tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? See, now you've heard the blasphemy. Verse 66, what is your decision? And they, the Sanhedrin and all the other priests and all the leaders, they answered, he deserves death. Which is what they were hoping for, setting him up for. Let's continue to see the way Jesus fulfilled what Isaiah said about him in in Isaiah 53, 7. Matthew 27, just a little bit over. Matthew 27, 11 through 14. So uh, before I read this, though, you need to understand that the Sanhedrin, though they had some authority over their own people, and they had a lot, they were given a, a pretty wide berth, pretty long leash, but they could not execute anybody. They didn't have the power under Rome to put anybody to death. For that, they had to bring someone before a legitimate Roman authority the governor of the the area of the region. So at this time, Pilate was the prefect over Judea. He was the governor. And so 
the very next morning, this was all you know late at night, and so as soon as it was light, as soon as it was morning, they brought him before Pilate to have him stand before Pilate, hoping to get the death sentence. They knew, though, that Pilate wasn't going to execute Jesus or anybody just based on Jewish law. So if they had said, he blasphemed according to our tradition, he blasphemed according to our Mosaic law, that's why he needs to die, Pilate wouldn't have done it. So they knew they had to do something else. So what they did is they decided to bring, again, false accusation and false charge and witness that Jesus was promoting rebellion against Rome, that he was promoting and teaching and preaching that people shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar and that they should just reject Roman rule. That would have gotten Pilate's attention. So with all that in mind, look at verse 11, Matthew 27, 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. And here was a direct question. Jesus answered, very similar to like he did with the chief priest. You say so. You say so. In verse 12, while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he didn't answer. There's that fulfillment again that he kept silent. See, Pilate's asking him a direct question. He's not bringing an accusation. He says, you say so. Verse 12, though, shows us that the people that had him in their own kangaroo court brought him to Pilate, and they were there with him. They were there before Pilate, and they were accusing him and bringing all these accusations. He's stirring up the people against Rome. He's promoting insurrection. On and on and on. So they were just leveling all these accusations, and he didn't answer them. He remained silent to those accusations. Verse 13, then Pilate said to him, Don't you hear how much they are testifying against you? Verse 14, But he didn't answer him on even one charge. Isaiah 53, 7, He remained silent as a lamb or a sheep before the shearers remained silent. That's what he did. He didn't answer him on even one charge. And look what the last part of this verse says. So that the governor was quite amazed. Sure he was, of course, because that's not what happened. When you had people standing trial and being accused of, especially what Jesus would have been accused of, if there were any shred of innocence in them, and even if there wasn't, even if they were guilty, Pilate's experience, like any judge, would have had the experience that they were trying to do everything they could to proclaim their innocence. No, 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 they've got it wrong. No, no, you need to listen to me. Let me me give you my version of the events, right? I mean, that's what we expect. You look at every courtroom, every court drama that's on TV, you always have even the guilty trying to convince people that they're not guilty. So for Jesus to stand there and not answer a single charge absolutely amazed the Roman governor and any governor. And it should amaze us too, because that's just not what we would do. We wouldn't do that. And that's not what we would expect anybody to do. So it begs the question, why? Why did Jesus remain silent to all those accusations? Why did Isaiah 
rightly prophesied that that's what would happen, and why did Jesus completely fulfill that in that detail and in that way? Well, the Scripture doesn't completely tell us. In fact, it doesn't tell us much at all as to the reason, just that it's what He did. One reason, possibly, is that because He was, of course, innocent, Jesus being who He was and the fact that He always silenced all of the statements that the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders had brought before Him up to this point, whenever He answered them up to this point, you know, when they tried to trap Him when He was out and about and He was teaching and preaching and doing miracles and they came and they, you know, they would accuse Him and try to get Him into a spot, He would always, always be able to answer them and silence them and, and get out of their get out of their trap, right? So it stands to reason that if he did open his mouth and he answered all their charges, then he probably would have been declared innocent. And he wouldn't have been sentenced to the cross. And he wouldn't go to the cross where he needed to be in order to be the sacrificial lamb of God. Because he was innocent. He allowed this to happen He didn't say anything because he was sovereignly in control of every detail of what was going on. Even their accusations, all the false testimony, it was all used to bring him to the cross where he needed to go and why he came for the first place. He needed to go for our redemption. He needed to go for our reconciliation. He needed to bear our sin, and He needed to be sacrificed for that sin that He was the bearer of. So He let it all happen. He remained silent. To the governor's amazement, and it should be to our amazement as well. And here's what's even more amazing still. The Savior that was silent before His accusers now stands beside His Father where He silences Satan's accusations against us. Isn't that absolutely astounding? Amazing. (laughs) Think about that. Here's Jesus standing in front of all these, these religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests who hate Him, who want Him dead. He didn't answer them. He was silent before all of his accusers, even though he didn't have to be. He let it happen. He went to the cross. He bore our sin. He was sacrificed for our sin, fulfilling all of those prophecies, all of those pictures, all of the need that we had, he fulfilled and he met. And now he stands beside his Father, where, as Hebrews 7 tells us, he ever lives. He always lives to intercede for us. Revelation 12 tells us that Satan is the accuser of all the brethren, that day and night he's before the Father accusing all of us, all the believers. He just brings accusation one after another. Look at what they're still doing. Look at what they're still choosing. You sent your son and you sacrificed your son for them to set them free from sin, and yet they're still choosing it. Look at that. And it's a fair charge. It's, it's a deserved accusation. But Jesus, Hebrews chapter 7 tells us, 
ever lives to intercede. First John tells us that in Jesus we have an advocate, Jesus the righteous one. So we have Jesus there constantly pleading our case, interceding for us, saying all those accusations that you, Satan, are leveling against and bringing against those who are mine in me, let me silence your accusation really quick. And all he has to do is plead his blood. The Father sees Jesus' blood and his righteousness covering us. And all of Satan's accusations fall silent. The one that stood silent before his accusers now stands for you beside his Father, where he silences all of Satan's accusations against us. What are the odds that anybody other than Jesus would do any of that? Right? Amen? Let's pray together. Let's thank this Savior for doing what He did for us. Lord Jesus, we thank You for who You are. We thank You for what we've been reminded of and shown today through Your Word. What You did, what You accomplished. Thank You for being the fulfillment of the picture of those two goats one sacrificed in atonement, one sent away for atonement. You accomplished both. You bore our sin. You carried it off of us and away from us. And You were the sacrifice. It was Your blood shed for those sins. Not Your sin, our sin. You knew no sin, yet You became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You did that for us. You were forsaken by Your Father so that we would never have to be forsaken by Him. There is no greater love. There is no Savior like You. Thank You, Jesus, for doing what only You could do and for doing it so willingly. Thank You for being our willing scapegoat and our humble Lamb. May we live for You in light of all of that, by the power of Your Spirit, and in Your name I pray, Amen.